Well, tonight we uh, continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Last week, somebody texted me and asked me why I chose the Gospel of Mark. Um, And then I had a couple people uh, ask me face-to-face the very same question. Song, why Mark? Well, then uh, right this weekend, my wife asked me the same question too. Hey, Sung, just out of curiosity, like why Mark? Is it like your favorite gospel? Or like why not Matthew or Luke or John or whatever? And I told my wife the same answer that I told everybody else. We're studying Mark because it's short. All right, it's only 16 chapters long, and yet it's still going to take us a couple years to walk through this gospel, right? We're going to intersperse it with some other series, kind of talk about different things, but it's going to take us a while. And what's really interesting about Mark's style is that he skips over a ton of details that the other gospels include. So, There are no genealogies, there is no Sermon on the Mount, no mention of the Christmas story and angels and wise men and eggnog and all that kind of stuff, because you know eggnog's in the Bible, right? Uh, No, it's not, just in case you're like, what, really? Uh, He skips over all kinds of details and he jumps right into the story of Jesus, Last week, if you were here, we covered the entire gospel of Mark, right? The unfolding progressive revelation, and the central theme of this book is Mark is trying to tell us the identity of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is, who is he? The Son of God, right? If you were here, that's what we talked about. And that raises all kinds of questions, interesting questions, like, What in the world does that even mean, to say that Jesus is the Son of God? I mean, it's language that we throw around in church. Scripture uses it. But when you actually step back and think about it, it sounds kind of strange, right? What does that mean that Jesus is the Son of God? So to answer that question, one of the things that we have to do is to put ourselves in the sandals of the original audience. And so we're going to take like five minutes and we're going to talk through, uh, we need to know right out of the gate that there were at least three different layers of meaning for those who first heard that phrase, uh, son of God. And so we want to ask, how would this phrase, the son of God, have been interpreted by those who lived in the first century? So if you're taking notes, there's a space in the back of the bulletin to jot down some notes. There were at least three layers of meanings that we're going to run through. The first layer of meaning was certainly political. Uh, Keep in mind that Mark was writing during the uh, reign and rule of Caesar Nero, who was on the throne. And and we talked about this in week one. He was cruel and, and violent and vindictive. He took Christians and sewed them in the skins of wild animals and fed them to the beasts in the arena. He took Christians and and dipped them in wax and and lit them on fire in his garden while riding naked in his chariot. I mean, that must have been a sight to see, right? As he's shrieking aloud, light of the world, light of the world. I mean, this guy was just insane. Uh, On top of that, Nero had this God complex. He had his subjects light incense at the temple, and they were required by law to say, Caesar is Lord. Not only that, but uh, he considered himself to be in Latin, divi filius, which is the son of God. 
And so when Mark writes that, no, 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 actually it's not Nero, but it's Jesus who is the son of God, that had all kinds of political implications and repercussions. And it was politically subversive and dangerous. Using this kind of language, the son of God, uh, would get you thrown in prison and possibly even executed. And so for Mark's audience, when they heard this phrase, um, they knew right off the bat that it had political overtones and, and just very political meaning to it. A second layer of the phrase son of God also had national meaning, especially for the Jews and the nation of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, God uh, uses, uh, refers to the nation of Israel using all sorts of nicknames and titles. But one of his favorite titles to give the nation of Israel was to call them his son. We see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. If you want to write that down, look it up later. Uh, he calls his people, the nation of Israel, my son. And so uh, in calling them that, God is saying, look, I'm caring for you. I am nurturing you. I am protecting you and comforting you like a father would a son. And uh, even though Israel was rebellious and they worshiped false God, God still loved them and pursued them and eventually sent his son to show Israel this is what a true son looks like, right? And so that, that, that had a lot of national meaning to it too, being God's son. And Jesus breaking into human history was uh, a way of saying for Jesus to say, look, I have come as the new Israel, what the nation of Israel could not do, which is fulfill the demands of the law, I have come, and now all the hopes and dreams of God's people are fulfilled in me. And so it had a lot of national meaning to it. Finally, not only political meaning and national meaning, it also had a lot of personal meaning. In the Jewish culture, to be called the son of something uh, didn't mean that you were less than. Right? Uh, it didn't mean that you were uh, subservient to your father or anything. To be called the son of something actually revealed your identity and your character. And so uh, we see this example in Mark chapter 3, a couple of chapters we're going to uh, look at uh, sometime next year. Uh, James and John, two disciples of Jesus, they were called the sons of thunder. Right? Uh, why were they called that? Was that because their dad's name was Thunder and their mom's name was Lightning? No, right? It was because that was their nature. That was their identity. That was their character. And so they were explosive and short-fused and quick-tempered. They were the sons of Thunder. I mean, some of you know that story where they, Jesus and his disciples go into Samaritan village and the village rejects Jesus. And so the sons of Thunder, James and John, say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, should we call down fire on them? for rejecting you, right? I mean, they were just, they were the sons of thunder, angry, explosive. I mean, you know, I mean, I get mad sometimes at people, but I've never said something like, oh man, you know, the 5 p.m. service just really gets me all angry. God, would you just nuke them, right? I mean, I never say that, but th I mean, that, that, that was their character. So to be called the son of something spoke of your character and your identity. So when Mark says that Jesus is the son of God, what he's really saying about Jesus is that Jesus is what? God, yes. He's saying that Jesus is divine. 
And so with all this kind of, and, and again, back in verse 1, we talked about uh, Mark saying Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we're, if you would tur- turn your Bibles, we're going to continue on in the story. We're going to read Mark chapter 1, verse 2 through 11. And just as a way of future reference, <laughs> as we read the primary texts uh, that we're going to study, uh, th- th- those words aren't going to be in the s- on the screen uh, uh, either you could turn to the Bible that's in front of your chairs and turn to page 836, or use your Bible app or turn to your own Bible. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to be reading uh, verses 2 through 11, and we want to get into the practice of opening Scripture and reading the words with our own eyes. So I'm going to read, uh, start, starting in verse 2, uh, uh, we are going to read about the forerunner of Jesus, Uh, His name was J the B, John the Baptist. Uh, Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He He was like a real hipster back in the first century, I guess. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to spend too much time on on this passage about John the Baptist. We're going to come back to him during the season of Advent. The verses that we're going to focus on this, uh, this evening is verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here ends the reading of God's word. And so here we have the very first story of Jesus as told by uh, Mark. And here, Mark described what happens at Jesus' baptism. And, and one thing to know the, 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 in this story is this, that he saw heaven, the heavens being torn open, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and, and um, the Father speaking words of blessing over his Son. Now, if you lived in the first century Israel, or if you witnessed this event, or more likely, if you heard about this account as the Gospel of Mark was being passed around, or, or you read it for yourself, this would have immediately captured your attention because it would have broken some sort of paradigm and it would have surprised you. And so you would have heard this and you would have said, wait, what? The heavens were torn open? Wait, wait, the Spirit of God came down? And the Father spoke? Uh, We're going to kind of walk through each one of those things because they're they're so filled with meaning and illusion and parallels that so often we just kind of read it and go, yeah, that's a great story, right? So we're going to go back to verse 10 where uh, it talks about where uh, Mark says immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now the word torn in the Greek is the word schizo. Can you say that together with me? Schizo. Schizo. 
Oh, come on, you, some of you guys aren't participating. Try that again. Schizo, right? Uh, and and we, that, that is where we get our English word. Guess what? Schizo, right? And it literally means to divide, to split, or to rip apart. And so Mark uses a word here that has actually taken scholars by surprise because he could have used any number of words to describe this event. And one of the most common words he could have used was simply to say the word open, right? But he, instead, he uses this phrase, torn, schizo. The heavens were ripped apart. It's a violent act. Why? Why does he use that word? Because that which is opened can also be closed. But that which is ripped apart cannot be undone. And so there is this sense of permanence and passion of behind what God the Father is doing here. The heavens are being schizo, ripped apart. It's also a word that we see used throughout Scripture. And it's a sign that God is about to speak or God is about to act. So as an example, back in the, uh, in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, it's originally written Hebrew, but in the Greek translation, it says this, Oh, that you would schizo. Tear open, rend the heavens and come down. That was Isaiah's prayer and hope. God, would you just rip the heavens open and come down? We also see the same word used at the end of Mark, uh, when, right after Jesus dies on the cross. It says this, the curtain of the temple was, and what do you guess this word was in Greek? Schizo, torn, ripped apart in two from top to bottom, right? So when Jesus died, the veil that separated the inner court from the Holy of Holies was torn. You know, when I was younger, I always thought that that veil was kind of more like a glorified bedsheet or something, right? Just this little flimsy thing hanging up there to separate the inner court from the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, which symbolized God's presence. No, this, this curtain in the temple was 60 feet high. That's like twice the height of this auditorium. It was like 30 feet wide and 10 inches thick. It took dozens of priests to put that curtain up. And so uh, this veil, this curtain was a symbol to the people saying this, look, you cannot go to God because of your sins have separated you from him. It was a reminder to the people. No one could go into the Holy of Holies except the chief priest, and he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so when Jesus died on the cross, Mark says something happened in the temple. The veil that separated us from God was schizo, torn apart, ripped, and it was God's way of saying, look, you may not be able to come to me, so I have come to you. The barrier between God and humanity has been bridged by my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And now I am with you. And in this, Isaiah's hope is also fulfilled, right? That the heavens would be torn open and God would come down. Now has come true in Jesus' baptism, right? And so, Get this, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's a schizo that happens in the heavens, and God comes down to his son. 
in this passage in Mark 15, which we'll study later, uh, uh, the, uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry, the God, the Father, also there's another schizo that happens, but it's the curtain, and now God comes down to all humanity. And so this, this is kind of the imagery, this is kind of the illusions that they would have heard when they, when they read this phrase, they saw the heavens being schizo, torn open. The next phrase would have also surprised them, spirit, the spirit descending on him like a dove. What on earth does that mean? Right, Mark, again, is anchoring his story of Jesus uh, into a, the larger story of God. Scripture for Mark would have been Torah, which is the, the Old Testament, the first five books of Moses, right? And so Mark is referring to Genesis chapter 1 when God created the world. In verse 2 of, Mark, uh, of Genesis chapter 1, it says this, when God created the world, the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. So here, Mark uses the same imagery and thus pointing beyond this baptism to the creation of the world. Where, and, and if you know the story of creation in Genesis 1, the entire trinity was participating in that, right? You see God the Father speaking world into being. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, which refers to the sun. And then the spirit of God fluttering over the surface of the waters like a dove. And so here, in the story of Jesus' baptism, you have the Trinity participating in that. The Father is speaking words of blessing. The Son is being baptized in the Jordan River, and the Spirit of God is coming down. And this is Mark's way of giving us a clue that the, uh, God is in the process of inaugurating a new creation. See, God started creation back in Genesis... Humanity ruined it because of sin, and now in Jesus Christ, he is inaugurating a new creation when all things will be made new, when all creation will be, uh, will be restored, and we can be reconciled to God. And so this is, again, the imagery that they would have heard in this simple statement of the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. Uh, moving on, uh, a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. Now, some of you know that uh, between the, old, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was a period of 400 years when God didn't speak to his people. Silence, nothing. And so when the readers of Mark's gospel would have read, and a voice came from heaven, it would have stopped them in their tracks because they would have said, well, wait, wait. God has been silent for 400 years, and now he's speaking? This is huge. And the first words out of God's mouth is, you are my beloved son. Here is God the Father speaking blessing over his son. <clears throat> and in the Greek, the word beloved, agapetos, it means unconditional, never-ending, unfailing love. That same word beloved is the word that Abraham used back in Genesis referring to his beloved son Isaac when he took his son Isaac, his only son, to offer him up as a sacrifice on the hillside of Mount Moriah. Some of you know that story. And so here we see God the Father using the same word beloved to refer to his only son who would eventually be offered up uh, and this is really cool, thousands of years later, on the same hillside as Abraham was offering up Isaac, 
and Jesus would be offered up in, on Mount uh, Golgotha as the once and final sacrifice for our sins. And so again, a ton of illusions and parallels here. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Right? That literally means I am fully delighted in you. Or another commentator said that God is bursting at the seams with love, which would explain why the heavens were torn open. Because the heavens themselves could not contain God's love for his son. So how much does the father love the son? The heavens could not contain. Okay, could you, uh, that's a phrase I want you to repeat and remember, okay? How much, how much does the father love the son? That, oh man, that, you, you guys sound like you were just, uh, okay, let, let's, let's say that one more time. How much does the father Love the sun. The heavens could not contain. I mean, the heavens literally had to be ripped open for God's love to be poured out upon his son. And here, uh, God the Father is saying, with you, I am well pleased. In essence, God the Father is doing what Jewish fathers have been doing for thousands of years uh, with their sons. In the Old Testament, remember, it was a patriarchal society. Jewish fathers, before they died, they would gather together all their sons, and one by one, they would speak a word of blessing to them. Essentially, the blessings were words of favor, affirmation and hope. And so they would say things like this. This is what I see God doing in you. This is what I see, uh, what I believe God wants to do through you and that God wants you to step into. And those words spoken by the father to their sons many, many times would prove to be prophetic and would serve to shape and form them and, and start them on the trajectory to, uh, for the purpose for which God had created that person. And so here's the father speaking these words of blessing. I am well pleased, doing what Jewish fathers have done for thousands of years. And so foundational is this idea of, of your, the father's blessing that in the Old Testament that if you didn't receive that, that was like the ultimate tragedy. And so the story of Esau, uh, Esau's name literally means red or hairy. I don't know if that's because when he was born, he must have looked like an orangutan or something. And his father was like, well, we'll just name him Esau, right? So Esau is this big, hairy man who loved to hunt wild game. And so I imagine Esau to be like this man's man, like really muscular and broad-shouldered, kind of like a lumberjack person who would have worn flannel if that was around back then, right? And so Esau is brought to tears. He's brokenhearted. Why? Because he missed out on his father's blessing. His brother had stolen his father's blessing from Esau. So when Esau goes to his father, he says, no, my son, your brother has taken it from you. And what does Esau do? He starts sobbing and he says, bless me also, my father. Bless me also, my father. See, there was nothing considered more tragic than missing out on your father's blessings. And so let me speak to those of you who are parents in general, uh, or, or will one day be parents. 
and maybe even more particularly to fathers, right? We all have this God-given responsibility to speak blessing over the lives of our children, to speak faith-filled words, hope-filled words, words that are inspired by God's spirit where we can say, you know, this is what I see in you. This is the future that I believe that God has for you and he wants you to step into. Not my dreams, not my desires, but God's dream for you, my son and my daughter. I am praying for you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. But the sad fact is that there are so many people today who have not heard the blessing of a father. And so we are filled with a city full of Esau's people who are crying out from the depths of their being and just saying, you know, bless me, oh my father, bless me. And so they're looking for that affirmation. They are looking for somebody, somebody who believes in them to, to speak words of truth into their life. And because they've never heard those words of favor and affirmation at home, we are looking for all, we are looking for that in all kinds of destructive places. And so we are disoriented, We are confused. We don't know where we're going. We don't know who we are. And we try to find our identity as we grow up in academics and work and so many things because we have not heard from our fathers and especially God the Father, the blessing that we, 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 we are given. And so we are called by God to speak blessing over our children. And let me just apply that even more broadly. Okay? We are called by God to speak words of blessing to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here we have the ultimate example of God the Father speaking words of blessing to his son. And so let's kind of narrow this down to kind of what that means for us today. And I think this is, this is really what it means. I think we have to remember that what God the Father did for his son in this passage is what he has done and is still doing for you and I tonight. What do I mean by that? God has literally torn the heavens open. He has sent his son to invade the brokenness of your human condition, to rescue you from the uh, despair and the hopelessness of sin, and to infuse you with God's glory and beauty and hope. And the veil that was torn Upon Jesus' death means now that anyone, not just the chief priest, not just the pastor or the missionary, but anybody can come anytime to be in the presence of God. And so the writer of Hebrew in chapter 4 says, Now, because of that, let us boldly enter into the throne room of grace. Later on in chapter 10, the same author of Hebrew says this, That veil that was torn, that was actually the body of Jesus. It was his body that was torn and ripped apart for you. So now we can approach God with confidence because his shed blood covers over our sins. And now the spirit of God comes down and dwells within you and me. And so the same spirit of God that anointed Jesus at his baptism is now available to you. The same spirit of God that empowered Jesus to carry out his mission is now available to you and I. And finally, that means the words that God the Father spoke to his son Jesus is the very words he speaks over you tonight. You are his beloved son, you are his beloved daughter, and with you he is well pleased. I don't know about you, but that's good news. 
Because if you've had a week like I have, a terrible week where you've just like messed up, where you did things and said things that didn't please God, right? And whenever you sin or you fall short, what always happens is Satan, the enemy, wants to come in and whisper into your ear and say, you know what? Of course you're not good enough. Look at you. I mean, you think you're going to make God happy? God is done with you. In fact, you know what? You should just give up on the whole Jesus thing. You're just so bad. I mean, you're just a terrible Christian. How do you even call yourself a Christian? And so we get whispered these lies from the enemy, and God's heart for you tonight is to remind you that you are his beloved. Or for some of you, like me, my father was present, but he worked a ton, so he was never present. And so you think, well, God, the father, I mean, well, I don't know what that means. Maybe some of you, you've been abused. Your whole picture of father is just so distorted. Or maybe you've just seen such terrible examples of what a father is. Maybe instead of affirming you, all you received was criticism. Maybe you never received favor and affirmation. And maybe the image of father just conjures up all sorts of brokenness and disorder. He wants to show you tonight what a true father is like. You are his beloved son, you are his beloved daughter, and with you he is well pleased. Let's go back to the question. How much does a father love his son? The heavens cannot contain. That is how much God the Father loves you. Let's pray. And so, God, we come in this holy moment to receive the words that the love that you have for us, that heavens cannot contain. It cannot be undone because you ripped apart the heavens and poured out your love for us on the cross. And so, Jesus, we come to you. We come running into your arms to hear your words of favor, your words of affirmation, and we want to let go of all the lesser gods, all, all, all the other voices that we seek after. And as we come before your presence tonight, we hear you saying to us that you will never leave us or forsake us. And so, God, we ask, Holy Spirit, come down. You dwell our hearts but would you make your presence so felt and so real in this place that all we can do as your people is to stand and sing and worship and adore you tonight. And so, God, we lift up our voices in response to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand? And let's respond with our voices, with our hearts, to God's word to us tonight.